Okay, uh, today's message is titled, The Church at Its Best. And I, I hope that we begin to see a picture of the New Testament church. Uh, it's just so beautiful. I mean, just the way that you kind of see, and we'll see these three passages interact with one another. Because, you know, the, the Bible wasn't written in this kind of like void, right? It was written... Uh, in an actual historical narrative. This stuff happened, and when Paul writes a letter to the church in Philippi or the church in Thessalonica, that letter was not written devoid of a, of a relationship, but it was written within a circumstance. And so as we read the, the book of Acts, we're seeing churches being planted, Paul actually visiting the cities of Philippi and Thessalonica, and later when he sends a letter to them, that has a huge bearing on how this overlays. And so you have three passages that we'll read today, and they kind of overlay one on top of the other, and it gives us a fuller picture of what is actually happening, and this is what we're going to attempt to do today. And so the first uh, passage is in Acts. Acts chapter 17. We're going to read the first four verses. It says this, now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus who I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a great multitude of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. Flip to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to kind of see this because Paul and um, Silas, they just left Philippi and they went to Thessalonica. Okay? And so Philippians chapter 4, we begin to see uh, a fuller picture of what's actually happening real time. Okay? Philippians 4, we'll read from verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Now, not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. And you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, that's the passage we read in Acts, at the first preaching of the gospel, after I departed from Macedonia, that's what we read, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, that's where Paul is in our chapter in 17 in Acts. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. Okay, that's the Philippians passage. Now, if you look to the screen, you'll find the 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 passage. And it says this. For you yourselves, now he's speaking to the Christians in Thessalonica. You Christians in Thessalonica, you know how you ought to follow our example because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. 
nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship. We kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. Okay, so I'm going to try to weave together this picture here. Paul and Silas are on the second missionary journey. They went to the churches that, they plant, that Paul planted on the first one, and they were trying to go into Asia Minor, into these areas, and the Spirit said, no, don't go here. God gives Paul a vision, and he says, I want you to go to Macedonia. And so they immediately make a beeline for Macedonia, and they find themselves in a leading city of that region, the city of Philippi. Paul and Silas, as soon as they arrive, new territory, new people, they don't know anyone, they don't know the place, they go to where they think is a place of prayer. As they go there, they find a group of women praying. Lydia is named as one of those women, a leading woman, a seller of purple fabrics. She follows, she believes, and she becomes a Christian. Her and her entire household believes, and they continue to go. The city is being turned upside down. Paul and Silas are thrown into prison. An earthquake is sent. The bars are opened. They're freed. The jailer is distraught and suicidal because he thinks his life is in danger because all the prisoners are freed. Paul says, stop. He stops. He's saved. His household is saved. They're all baptized. And by morning, they're all back in jail and a letter comes from the leading authorities. Okay, you're free to go. And Paul's like, wait a minute, you beat us. This is unjust. We're not just going to go quietly. And, and, and so they, they come and they entreat them. They beg, please just leave our city. Paul and Silas go back to Lydia's house, presumably also maybe even with the jailer that was saved. And they encourage them. And from there it says our passage. After departing from Macedonia, they arrived finally in the city of Thessalonica. And for a series of weeks, they were preaching the gospel. And not only were they preaching the gospel on, on the Sabbaths, you, you know that they're relating with the, the people of the city and the region throughout the week. And as they are relating with them, wherever they are staying, whatever meal is presented in front of them, the passage in Thessalonica tells us that Paul paid for it all. He wasn't expecting a free ride. And he was saying to the church in Thessalonica, you yourselves know that when we were with you, we worked hard. Right? We worked hard. We didn't just come to try to freeload off of everybody, and we did this so that you would have an example. That this gospel is not a lazy faith. That this gospel is a diligent one. That faith in God also is a part of that is hard work, diligence. And I want you to follow our example. Don't be lazy. Work for the bread that you eat. Right? And he's giving a fuller picture that when they were there, they also worked. They preached the gospel. But then you go back to the passage we read in Philippians, right? The Philippians 4 passage. You know that famous passage, 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What a great passage that is. What a great truth that is. The context is giving and receiving. Paul having abundance and having a tremendous lack. And he's saying, you know what, whether it's I have a lot or a little, I know how to get along. I know how to get by. I know how to thrive. Because it's not... In these circumstances, a lot or a little, where I find my satisfaction. It's in Christ who gives me strength. 
But I want you to know, Philippians, you did well. Thank you for sharing with me. Because when I was in Thessalonica, in this Acts 17 passage that we're reading, not once, but a couple of times, you sent a love offering my way. And I'm so thankful. Not because I seek the gift, but I know that God is going to give a blessing back into your life so many fold. I seek the profit that is added to your account. And the picture that you're seeing here is in the end, the gospel is being preached in a new region. A new church is being born. I mean, what a great joy that is. I mean, I know like, you know, like Andrew, you guys are expecting a child to come into the world. And what a great joy that is for parents. In a spiritual sense, when a church is being birthed, there is a similar type of joy. We're talking about the first century and this gospel now being commissioned through the early disciples. Go into the nations, right? And this is exactly what is happening. A new church is being born. What a thriving, exciting thing and moment that is. But how is it happening? Essentially, Paul, Silas, and company, that their ministry is being provided for by a combination of two things. Their own diligence and the love offering of the church. Particularly in our passage, the Philippian church. And as I see these pictures coming together, the church in Philippi, they weren't selfish. They weren't just thinking about building their own church. They understood that Paul was anointed for the gospel and that he was just an apostle to plant churches. And as he left their city to go to a different city, they said, you know what? We want to support that work. Not only are we going to funnel our resources to build up our own community, we want to send money and send it over there because we want a church to be birthed wherever he goes. And it's such a giving posture. It's such a humble posture. And this is what we're seeing here in the church in Thessalonica, just an infant young body. They, they don't know left from right when it comes to spirituality, right? And Paul is preaching the gospel on the Sabbaths, just reasoning with them, proving to them that Christ is the Lord, how He had to, to rise from the dead. And he's just in a convincing fashion sharing the truth of the Word. And people are believing and when he's with them through the week, not only is he just relating with them in fellowship, somehow whatever he is doing there, he is tent making as well. He's earning a living, paying for the things that are in front of them. Not because he didn't have a right, because as, as the Bible teaches, you know, don't muzzle the ox, right? When you are serving the Lord, there, there's a certain thing that comes with that where God will provide for you through the ministry itself. Paul understanding that yet, saying we had a right to that, but we didn't assert it because we knew where you were, the condition of your own diligence, how you, you receive faith. And I wanted you to see an example, Paul is saying. I didn't assert my rights over you to be fed by your hands, but I did that sacrificially because I wanted your faith to be stronger. Do you see how these parts are coming together in such a beautiful way. And as I see that, I see really the church at its best. It's something that is so powerful that is happening. And so I want to share three main points this week in describing, as I see it in our overlaid passages, how the church works at its best. And the first is to say this, that the church is at its best when it grows God's kingdom and lives for His glory. Okay? 
when the, the very priority, when the highest motivation of the church and of the Christian is this, God's kingdom and His glory. Now that seems like a no-brainer, right, in the church. But when you try to live this out in practice, it kind of looks like this, right? It's the church in Philippi saying, you know what? I know we're a young church ourselves and we're, we got a lot of lack and we need to do all of this for ourselves in this church. But we believe in the mission of the church and what you've preached to us, Paul, and we want to support that work. That's our highest priority. Not just building up this church, they're saying. And for Paul, I know I have a right to this, but I believe that if I work hard, if we work hard for the ministry that's in front of us, I know we have a right to receive from you, but we won't exert that right because by doing so sacrificially, it gives greater glory to God and it will strongly build His kingdom. That there are parts here that as we look at it, this is what it means on a practical level to seek God's kingdom, to live for a glory that is not our own comfort. And we're seeing it in action here. But to live for God's kingdom and His glory, in a certain sense, I think it requires some rewiring. It requires some retraining, all right? Why do I say that? And uh, like, if you, if you think about it, I mean, a lot of my examples comes from my family because I live with them, right? And they're young enough where I don't have to ask them for permission. Right? When they get older, I'll ask them for permission, okay? My wife, I have to ask for permission, okay? But the kids, not yet. Maybe when they get to like middle school, I'll ask them, okay? Because they'll be a little upset if I use them. But if you think about it, why do we need to be rewired? From a young age, I put up some work, okay? I put up some of like the kids' work. Like when the kid, like this is Jacob's here, right? What are, we, what are we taught? Put your name in the top left corner. Aren't you taught how to write your name? Right? And we are taught to put our name on our work. Now, this isn't a bad thing, because why? It teaches responsibility, doesn't it? Like, take responsibility for the work that you do. And we need to identify the work that is done, okay? And so, I mean, you know, uh, his weekly... Now, mind you, he's only in the first grade, and he gets like an hour of homework. Did y'all get an hour of homework in the first grade? This is absurd, right? He has like 20 to 30 minutes of reading and 20 to 30 minutes of math every day. This is like, as a parent, like, whoa, I can't believe this, right? But regardless, he, I mean, he's doing well, okay? But he puts his name in there, like on the top left corner when he does artwork, he puts his name. And when he does a story, he's got to put his name on it, right? And so he's putting his name on his work. That's what we're taught. When you do something, put your name on it. Christopher, right? Of course, he's only in pre-K, so the, the, it's different. But as I look at it, you know, he puts Chris because it's Christopher is very long for a, a four-year-old. It really is. If I showed you like how we first tried to write it, it was very... And so uh, like Chris is how we shortened it at school so that it's a lot easier for him to write it on every single paper that he writes, okay? And so for him, same thing. At age four, as he's learning to write his name, I want you to put that name, his teachers will say, on your work. Okay. But as you think about it, I think this is precisely why there needs to be some godly rewiring. As we move into adulthood, into maturity, 
And as we allow the gospel to take root in our lives, yes, we take ownership and responsibility. We are stewards. But too often, if not only does the name on the top receive the responsibility, but also the glory. Like, I got a test. It's 10 out of 10. Who gets the credit for that? It's the person whose name is on the top. Unless you cheated, right? But as you think about that, you got to overlay that with what the Bible says in John chapter 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And this idea of giving God glory, of living for his kingdom, there needs to be a certain sense of teaching there, a maturation, a learning curve. Something that says, I, I know that... I'm living, that it's my name on the paper, that it's my name on the contract, that it's my name here or there. But the successes that I have, the thing that I'm striving for, that I need to put a name overlaid on top and above my name, inside my name. And I need to recognize the fact that I'm a branch to a vine. That the vine is the main. That's what's connected to the source. That's where the power and the nutrients come from. And I am a branch connected to a vine that is greater than me. And I need to recognize that branch. And this is where the rewiring happens a little bit. This is where I begin to say, you know what? I need to live for a greater glory. Not just to get my name out there. Not just to do things for my future and my prosperity. But I need to learn how to live for a glory that is God's. A kingdom that is His. You know, <coughs> as I was rummaging through the kids' work just to get a couple of pictures, I found a, a, a unique and I think a timely example. Christopher, he was trying to, you know, he's going from Christopher to Chris because he's shortened it. And he started to try to write Christopher, right? And this is where he got to. <laughs> Christ. <laughs> I love it. This is perfect. This is perfect, right? This is absolutely, mean, the timing couldn't have been any better on this, right? The name that you put on, that you portray, and the glory that you give is Christ. <laughs> yes, thank you, second son, Christopher. Right? And he stopped at the T because the rest is still too long. Right? But I think the point is there. That as we strive, we work hard for a living. We work hard to build our families and our personal lives. And in the end, when we succeed at something or when we do something, is it finally our home or our name or our future and prosperity that we're striving for at the end? Do we want our name to be on the marquee? Or are we saying, I want the name of Christ. I want people to know that He's the vine of my life and that apart from Him, I can do nothing. I think that's a truth that needs to bear true in each and every one of our lives as Christians. To live for a glory that is higher than ours. To strive for a kingdom that is greater than ours. And I think that's something we can learn from our passage here in Acts and overlaid with the Philippians and Thessalonians passage.
the second point. The church is at its best when it submits to and supports the whole without boasting. And so when the parts of the church body know how to submit to the other parts and support the other parts without claiming glory or boasting. This is the church at its best, right? It's the heart saying, you know what? I don't need to boast to the kidney that I'm central to all the organs. Why? Because if either fails, life ends. It's the skin saying, you know what? I don't need to boast that I am the one that really takes out and, and, and protects the entire body of all disease and infection because there are other smaller, unnoticeable parts that have an equally important position. And that's what's clear in the Bible, right? That the body is diverse, many members, and not, have, not all have the same function. This is the message, and the body is a perfect example of this idea, of mutual submission and support, and understanding that it's the whole Christ, the body, that gets the glory, not the individual parts. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus, starting his ministry, begins to teach. Stop trying to do things for your own glory and recognition. And he begins to teach on three particular things. And he begins to say, first, when you give an offering, don't even let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Just give it in secret and your father who sees in secret will actually repay you. But when you do it in a way where everybody sees what you're doing, you have your reward in full. That's it. Earthly recognition. And when you pray, you don't have to go on the corner of the street and with eloquence pray so that everyone knows you are a man of prayer. Rather, go into your closet and pray to your heavenly father who already knows what you need and pray in this way. When you fast, you don't have to like, oh, I'm so tired. Yeah, I've been fasting today. <laughs> you put on that gloomy face. But wash your face. And your Father who sees in secret will repay you. And it's understanding that I don't need to boast and put myself out there all the time. That I do things in submission to the overall body of Christ. And in so giving my gift, something great happens. There's a verse in Scripture that I think I quote a lot because I love this verse. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, it says, as each one has received a special gift. Right? What a great idea that we all have a special gift. Too often we think that other people have special talents, that I want to be musical like that, or I want to be a leader like that, or I want to be able to do that. I want to be able to kind of have that. And we all think about the special nature of other people but here it's saying that actually, no, kind of turn it in. Look, at, look in the mirror and say, you know what? The one you're looking at in the mirror has a special gift. Each one has received a special gift. And because you have that special gift, use it. Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. The grace of God represented in its many facets and colors. The manifold grace. That when the entire body with its different functions and members operates as a whole, representing the many folds like a fan that unfolds when you bring it out, 
The beauty of what it's portraying there, that's what happens when all of the different members with its talents and functions all support the whole. And so it allows us, not with pride, but with humility, to recognize our God-given gifts and then use those gifts in submission to the entire body. Not to boast about it, but to understand that this is how God's grace is represented. And lastly, the church at its best is a church that has a local and global vision. This is the church in Philippi, isn't it? Right? The local church in Philippi is, man, we are a new church. Right? Paul just came here. There's something exciting happened. We saw miracles in that family, and the city is kind of murmuring about what's going on here. We've got to build this church. Right? But something happened in that community where they understood that the gospel was not just about their church, that it was much bigger than that. And so they had a, a global vision as well, that they understood that the gospel needed to go to other cities, that other people needed to hear of it, that more churches needed to be born. And it really boils down to the vision, to the mission of the church. And there's no secret here. There are, are a couple of passages that should highlight and undergird the work of every church, right? And you, 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 what's the mission of the church? You can find that in Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, right? Baptizing them, teaching them. Right? This is the mission. This is the, 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 the high principle stuff, right? This is what really guides the, the main thing. The main place we're going, the mission of what we're doing as a church is to make disciples. Not just where we're at, but of all nations. Right? But what's the vision of that? How, how do we go about doing that? How do we go about making those disciples of the nations? And that we can find in the vision of the church found in Acts 1.8, right? Receive power, right? Don't do it by yourself. Don't rely on your own strength, but receive the power of the Spirit. And when you receive the power of the Spirit, how you obtain and fulfill this mission that you have as a church is then you will be witnesses. Right? You're going to be witnesses and you're going to start from your location, your locale, your neighborhood, your Jerusalem, and you're going to venture outward and slowly grow from there. That's the vision of how the mission is accomplished. And then you think, well, wait a minute. Okay, we understand that mission and vision, but... What are the values that guide the church? What are the values that uphold each gathering? That when you actually get together, what's the worldview that you have as believers? And that we find in the values of Matthew 28, right? You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the worldview of the follower of Christ. This is the values. This is the lens upon which they look at the world. Love God with everything and love people sacrificially. And as you see that overarching mission of going and making disciples of the nations and doing it by being filled with the Spirit and being witnesses of Jesus, starting from my location and moving outward, and I do all of this, with a mindset and heart that seeks to love God with everything and love people passionately, sacrificially. This is the church at its best. 
And so as I close, pray see me guys come back. Let me finish with two principles, two points. And it's this. Learn the joy of giving and serving without credit. Without credit. Right? Because when we get credit, I mean, it's pretty easy. I mean, a lot of the times we do things, you know, that are very difficult if we know we'll get credit for it. Right? We work hard on a project if we know we're going to get promoted. Right? If it's going to result in a raise. Some sort of recognition. Right? But learn the joy of what it means to give, to serve, behind the scenes. Learn how to mentor somebody in a hidden fashion. This is powerful. This is parts of the church functioning at its best when this happens. When our end goal is not our glory, our name, our promotion, but our end goal is a stronger, healthier body of Christ, a growing kingdom of God, the righteousness of God. And secondly, influence City Chapel here, your location, your local church, for God's glory. But don't let it stop here. Allow your gifts to flourish, to be identified. Serve. Find ways, find holes and cracks and ways to make this a better, more beautiful, fuller community. But let's allow that vision not to stop here in our community. And let's see a bigger church in Orange County. Let's see a bigger church in the world. Let's see the body of Christ in its fullest and understand that our vision and our calling starts here, but it moves from a witness that goes outward to the nations. Amen. Amen.